Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. We never lack for proper cause to podcast. It's election shock <laughs> therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me on this locked and loaded podcast, oh, I've got the dad jokes. Uh, joining me on this podcast are Andy Bramson, Matt Cookham, Mitchell Crumb. And if my uh, if my terrible dad jokes didn't already give it away, uh, we're going to be talking about New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, which was one of the most important uh, decisions rendered by the Supreme Court, which did not deal with the issue of abortion uh, this term. Before we get to that, go guys, can I give you a riddle? Sure. What do Thomas More and Joe Biden have in common? Which Thomas More? Oh, you're already seeing through the heart of my my riddle. <laughs> I was your son, or they're both Catholic. Um, they're um, they're both all right. Yeah. Now uh, it's it's my son Thomas More, not the philosopher Thomas More. Uh, Like my son, uh, Joe Biden now apparently has a mild case of COVID. Yeah. Um, Yes, saw that. And uh, this is you know probably not a huge deal, but I'm just, uh, it's, it's, it's breaking news as we're starting to record. If this becomes an issue of some merit um, or some importance for national security or, or American politics, we of course will break the glass and do an emergency podcast. But uh, as for right now, we're going to deal exclusively with the Supreme court and exclusively with uh, New York state rifle, rifle and pistol association versus Bruin um, a case that came out of the state of New York about uh, New York's law, limiting uh, well actually before i dive into it uh, matthew you want to walk us through the parameters of this case and what um uh what was actually at issue in this in bruin okay so let's um do a little bit of table setting here um so the case is new york state rifle and pistol association v bruin um the case was a 6-3 decision um, the majority opinion was written by uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. And essentially what the case does is it says that um, there is a constitutionally protected right um, to bear arms outside the home for self-defense. Um, so this is incorporating, you might say, one of the parts of the Second Amendment and using the 14th Amendment through the process of selective incorporation to do that. Um, now, an important thing to keep in mind sort of going into this case is that there were a couple of really important cases um, earlier in this century, uh, District of Columbia v. Heller in 2008 and McDonald v. Chicago in 2010. And basically, these two cases together, what they did is they basically said there is a constitutional right to keep arms, right, to own firearms. Um, and there were some laws that were in question, uh, mainly some gun bans, essentially, in Washington, D.C. and Chicago. And these bans were struck down as being unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. Um, and, of course, these cases, 
decided by the court were narrow. They only had to do with the question of sort of ownership of firearms. So there's another question about, well, once you own a firearm, what can you do with it? Where can you carry it, essentially? Um, and the Supreme Court had not weighed in um, on that particular item yet. And so the question is, can you bear arms? That's the other part of the second minute, bear arms outside uh, outside your home, specifically for the purpose of self-defense. So there was a um, licensing regime in the state of New York, um, which basically would issue um, carry licenses, right? So this has to do with keeping arms, carry licenses um, for people to carry handguns outside the home for self-defense. Um, now, New York um, was one of the states that has what's called a may issue sort of licensing mm -hmm. regime, as opposed to a shall issue licensing regime. The, a shall issue licensing regi regime is basically like, as long as you meet certain sort of objective requirements, you are sort of automatically granted a license, sort of like you would have for driver's licenses in all the states. A may issue regime uh, allows states to exercise a good deal of sort of um, independent sort of discretion about whether or not to um, actually give um, a license. So you could sort of think of a shall issue regime as protecting a particular right um, and a may issue regime as treating this right as more of a type of privilege. If you meet a certain threshold, if you prove to the state um, um, certain things um, and meet certain requirements, then the state may issue a license to you. So it's sort of a right versus a privilege approach. Um, and essentially, um, the case sort of came about when sort of the state of New York, um, which has had books on the laws for a long period of time uh, that take sort of this may issue a, a sort of privilege type approach, um, basically had sort of made it very difficult to even carry your handgun outside of the home. Um, and so you had a case in which um, a couple of guys basically own firearms legally, and they literally because of the laws that were in place, couldn't sort of legally transport their firearms deconstructed in a case in their trunk, essentially transport it to a firing range for practice. Like that's how restrictive mm. the law was. Um, and so they said, this is basically an infringement of our right to actually um, bear arms. What's the point of being able to have arms if you can't actually make any sort of use of them, if you can't even carry them to a practice range, essentially. And so um, there was all sorts of hoopla around how New York State actually handled this case. Um, ultimately, this case wound up before the Supreme Court, um, and the Supreme Court issued a 6-3 decision, basically striking down uh, the New York law. And we can sort of delve, we will delve into some of the, the legal questions involved and the approach that um, Justice Thomas took in writing the majority opinion. Um, but sort of the bottom line is that uh, the court thinks that a law abiding responsible citizen has a right to carry a weapon for self-defense. There can be reasonable limits on this right. Um, but states that use these sort of may issue regimes that allow states a wide degree of discretion um, and basically place a huge burden on the right to sort of bear arms outside the home, these sorts of state laws are in violation of the constitution. So you could have, a, a and essentially this is where we get to Justice Kavanaugh's opinion, concurring opinion in which he was joined by Roberts, you can have a wide range of different types of restrictions on, um, on the bearing of arms outside the home, right? Um, and they walk through a whole sort of litany of types of regulations um, that could pass constitutional muster, for example. We can talk about some of those. It's just that states that 
um, use the May issue regimes that are extremely restrictive in which the states have a considerable discretion in doling out who gets who gets these firearms or carry permits like those are out. Those are unconstitutional. So um, this only affects New York um, and potentially the other seven or so states that use um, particular um, may issue um, firearm regulation regimes. Um, the other 43 states that issue shall issue regimes, absolutely no effect on those. Um, and so it's actually, even though it's an important case legally and that it basically incorporates the right to bear arms outside the home, incorporates that um, to the states, applies it to state laws, um, it's actually sort of fairly narrow in the sorts of firearm regulations that it strikes down. And what you're going to see, we'll talk about this in more in depth as well, is you're going to see a whole spate of future like uh, litigation about just sorts of what sorts of restrictions a shall issue regime can include, right? Um, and there's already been some movement on this, um, especially in states like California. So, so Legally, extremely important. It's it's a landmark case, right? Um, but the actual sort of policy effects um, and the sorts of laws it strikes down are actually quite narrow. Thanks, Matt. Um, hopefully that, uh, I hope people caught the difference between what a may issue state is and a shall issue state. And just to um, foot stomp what uh, Matthew just said, um, New York and six other states currently have um, may issue um, uh, rules. Everybody else has, has moved to shall issue and move is the important part here. As recently, I think as the late 80s, most states had may issue and they've sort of gravitated towards this shall issue kind of kind of model, which is what the court is, is sort of affirming to. So the court's sort of moving with legislative and policy trends. Um, on this regard, but that doesn't mean that we have ever. This is a perfectly admirable decision, um, right, Mitch? <laughs> yeah. Well. So yeah. So I mean, in looking at this, one of the things that I think is important to keep in mind, and I think this is part of what. Um, I, well, I should probably say at the outset um, that uh, I, I found this case fairly troubling. Um, I think there are a lot of. Um, issues both with the outcome and with um, the reasoning um, that both the majority and some of the concurrences used um, as they're, you know, as they're, as they're doing this. But um, you, one of the things just to note, and I do think, you know, on the one hand, like it is true that, you know, the um, it's only if, at this point, this only affects a handful of states. Although part of that mm -hmm. has to do with the fact that the court has been indicating at least since 2008, right. That these laws, you know, were, their, their days were numbered. Right. I mean, even though Heller, you know, kind of said, we're not talking about these wider issues, they sort of like said, we're going to take this up later, which all but said, like, you know, you're in trouble. Um, and of course, now they are. So, you know, um, so, so I think that's part of it. And the other thing, too, is, I mean, most of the states that are affected are some of the most populous states in the U.S. Um, so in that sense, I mean, you know, we're, when we're talking about New York, California, those kinds of states, I mean, we're talking about enormous populations of um, of the United States and some of the, you know, and also Illinois, right? And so we're talking about like, you know, some of the most, you know, some of the largest cities in the US. Um, and so, you know, so that's a pretty big impact in that way. Um, you know, and even if we were just talking about New York, I mean, you know, it's New York City. So that's a huge impact all on its own. So I do think, I mean, I do think mm -hmm. it's a pretty substantial impact in that sense. Um, it is true, you know, that this is sort of the way things are going, but I do think part of that also has to do with the court itself. Mm -hmm. Um, but at any rate, um, just as, so, 
just to go ahead and dive into a little bit of Thomas's reasoning here and where I think some of the, some of the issues lie here. So when we look at this case, um, you know, this is, this is an example, or at least it's purported to be an example of originalism. <laughs> so I know we've talked about it before, but just to sort of say what originalism is, originalism is the idea that you interpret the Constitution or laws mm-hmm. um, or amendments to the Constitution as they were understood at the time they were written. So you go back and you say, okay, what did this, you know, particular word or phrase or whatever mean, you know, to a normal, you know, person in 1790, right, or whatever, right. or 1791, right. or mm-hmm. whatever, whatever exact, you know, date you're looking at, or whatever past and all that. Um, or in the case of like the 14th Amendment, what did this mean in, you know, uh, 1868? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so when you're looking at this, um, so when you're using originalism, you're supposed to be going back and, and examining the history to look closely at what right. these, at what these, at what these words and, and phrases mean. Mm-hmm. Now the issue comes up pretty quickly, and I just want to highlight um, right off the bat, right? So pretty early on in Thomas's opinion, he says the following. So let me go ahead and just give a quote here from very early in Thomas's opinion. He says, "Okay, so this is quote: the burden falls on respondents." So just as a pause here, this is the the respondents are in New York's are the folks with. Um, defending New York's gun laws. So Thomas says the burden falls on the respondents to show that New York's proper cause requirement is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. To do so, respondents appeal to a variety of historical sources from the late 1200s to the early 1900s. But when it comes to interpreting the constitution, not all history is created equal. Constitutional rights are enshrined within the scope and are understood to have, uh, they they were understood to have when the people adopted them." Unquote. The second amendment, Sorry, he's there, there. He's quoting Heller. And then he says, and then Thomas goes on and says, the Second Amendment was adopted in 1791, the 14th and 1868. Historical evidence that long predates or postdates either time may not eliminate the scope of the right. Okay, so unquote. Now, I do want to note here, right, that right off the bat, what Thomas is essentially doing here is he says, we're going to use historical analysis but only the historical analysis that I decide is really good and important, right? So, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe you found examples that say I'm wrong, but I'm just going to say that it's not all created equal and we're just going to check those things, you know? And so Thomas is just sort of saying like, yes, I'm using history, um, my history. (laughs) And it sort of like immediately reminds me, you know, I I think, um, um, you know, I was was listening to uh, Ezra Klein the other day, and I was he I was really struck by one thing that Klein said, I think one of the things I think this case is perhaps the most glaring example of it here, where he said the Supreme Court has appointed itself, um, not only have have they said that they are going to use history to interpret the court, but they have ordained themselves as the official arbiters of the quote unquote, true history. In other words, what Thomas is doing here is he's saying, I'm not simply going to rule for all official purposes in the United States law and policy. What uh, what I think history tells us the law is, I'm going to actually rule and tell you what you have to believe history is. And if you don't agree with my history, well, guess what? We're the Supreme Court. We get to rule and it's our job to rule. So you just have to take it. And so, you know, when I look at this and I see this kind of language from Thomas, I'm pretty disturbed. I think Thomas is being, you know, is really kind of going much too far when he says this. You know, he's essentially saying, yes, you've presented lots of historical evidence, which to an originalist should say, oh, that means we should moderate our position. We should admit that we were wrong. And he's saying, yeah, but I'm just going to ignore that because I don't think it counts. Uh, Matt, I think you're muted. I'm <laughs> muted. Sorry. <laughs> um, 
my keyboard. You, you were clearly animated, however. You yeah. Could not, you no, looked excited. I, I, so go ahead and say that yeah. again, buddy. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm in agreement with Mick. I think, um, you know, I mean, Thomas is very lengthy um, explanation of sort of gun regulations um, <clears throat> and trying to sort of, um, you know, interpret them in a certain way to arrive at a certain conclusion, right, is, is problematic. And it's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the majority opinion says, well, we don't believe that the lower courts um, are capable of sort of using um, sort of basic um, sort of policy analysis to weigh whether or not particular gun regulation is, is appropriate mm-hmm. um, and is constitutional. Um, that mode of analysis isn't something that the courts are equipped to do. Um, however, they are equipped to um, do this sort of historical analysis as if this historical analysis is so much simpler. It's actually not. It's actually probably mm-hmm. more complicated. So, right. um, so this doesn't really provide um, any sort of real clarity for the lower courts. Um, and to sort of how I would modify maybe Mitch's critique um, is that the problem isn't with sort of using text history and tradition or the Supreme Court actually making sort of a definitive ruling on how we're going to interpret the text history and t- tradition. It does this all the time. That's not necessarily a problem. The problem is when the text history and t- tradition is exceedingly complicated, right? There are some sorts of legal legal questions that are more straightforward, some are more complicated. And and really gun regulations um, are the most complicated in, of the sorts of things in our text history and tradition. And so, um, so I don't think that the, the tradition of sort of legal restrictions on gun control provides the sort of clarity that, that Thomas uh, wants it to provide. Um, and I think that's where, where there's real limits um, to his particular mode of analysis. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a question of, of both of you? I mean, um, and I'm not sure which one of you wants to tackle it, but I guess when I think about like the historical analysis piece, I mean, a couple of things strike me um, in terms of like how we would have understood this in, in say 1791. I mean, one is how much we, we consistently seem to overlook the beginning of the second amendment, which is that whole language about a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state and then it goes on to say the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So, I mean, what what happens with that in the historical analysis piece? That's one question. And then the second is like, is there any consideration, because I haven't done a deep dive into this, is there any consideration of just the way firearms, and especially personal firearms, have shifted so dramatically? I mean, because that seems to be really important when you think about when this right is enshrined in 1791, right? The you know, what you could, what firearms look like, what they could do was just vastly different than what, what people are able to buy today. Um, and that seems like important historical context. I mean, they, they gave this right in this moment for these kind of arms. And I don't know that we could expect them to have foreseen like, oh, you know, that th- there would be um, AR-47s or whatever, right? So um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious, like, to what extent do they seem to think about that within this historical analysis? What's relevant piece? Yeah. I want to address the militia thing first. I mean, I think you're right on that Thomas's opinion um, or even just any sort of a mode of historical analysis here is going to be run up against real limits um, when, um, when sort of modern technological developments um, 
lead to real changes and 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 mm-hmm. you know and the sorts of policies that you would need to deal with it right so but as far as the militia clause goes here actually if you look back to um the heller case um and mm-hmm. scalia's majority opinion he actually i think does a pretty good job explaining the relationship between the militia clause and sort of the keep and bear arms clause um, and I think perhaps the most persuasive part of his analysis has to do with his very extensive references to the debates surrounding militias and mm-hmm. the question of standing armies during the framing or the founding period of the Constitution. So there was right. a great concern about the dangers of having standing armies. Um, this sure. was actually one of the main um, criticisms that the anti-federalist had against um, the Constitution. They opposed the ratification of the Constitution because it basically provided for a standing army. Um, and, and so there was a question about concern about these standing armies would actually pose um, to people's sort of life and liberty. After all, it was mm-hmm. a standing army um, that sort of occupied and fought against um, the, the British colonies um, uh, on the North American continent. And they just fought a war against a standing army. So you could see there was a lot of concern about what standing armies would do. And so the idea was like, we need to have essentially a body of, well, basically we need to make sure that we can have a militia of basically mm-hmm. all male citizens that would be sort of a last resort against a standing army that was turned against the populace, which is exactly what they had dealt with. Um, And what's important about a militia is that it is composed of all male citizens at this point, Mm -hmm. right? Not just a select set of male citizens, it's all male citizens, and it's not under any sort of direct government control. So a sort of a state national guard, such as what we have now, would not sort of count as a militia, it would count as a standing army, right? Or as a select militia, that's a term that's, that's also used. And so we want a militia um, that is basically sort of universal. And the only way that you can really support that sort of sort of militia of all citizens, not controlled by the government, is to uh, you know basically ensure that all, all members um, of the citizenry have the right to keep and bear arms. And mm-hmm. so the, you know, so it's been said that essentially the right that is enshrined in the Second Amendment is the right to keep and bear arms. Full stop. The purpose of it in some sense, is to provide for this sort of all-citizen militia, right? But the right itself, um, at least according to Scalia, is something that that still continues to exist, um, even though sort of our concepts of, of an all-male sort of all-citizen militia would have shifted. So, so in, in essence, under this interpretation, which I think is fairly persuasive, sort of the militia clause doesn't sort of bracket off the right to keep and bear arms only for those people who are somehow enlisted in um, sort of an official national or sort of state level a military apparatus. So I find that persuasive. Uh, there's other people who disagree. Um, yeah. Matthew, yeah, maybe, you, maybe Mitch has another take on that. Since you, I want to just follow up really quickly, Matthew, since you said you found it this persuasive, here's, I guess, my question. If we, say that things like the national guard and, and certainly the military right. do not fit within this concept conception this originalist conception of of a well-regulated militia what does count as a well-regulated militia because right. either you have sort of a mass yeah. armed citizenry which could be assembled and that seems to take it out of the state's hands which which i understand that makes sense mm-hmm. but then what does well-regulated mean right yeah, that's no, exactly that's, what i was thinking question. when you were saying that yeah yep so I'm not sure we've ever had like who's regulating it. If, like, if, who's yeah, the, if, if, 
I, I agree with you. This is where originalism should be really helpful because otherwise the second amendment is, is oddly written. It's oddly phrased and really you is. need context to help us understand it. But the implication is that we've never actually had what the second amendment calls for. Which is interesting. No. And I think, I mean, honestly, I, I would just say uh, with, you know, I, I guess, especially over the years, I guess I found Scalia's reasoning less and less persuasive. Um, and in particular, partly because of that, I mean, you have this idea of well, something being well-regulated. And in particular too, I mean, just if you take, and I think there's a number of historians who've made this case pretty persuasively. I mean, if you take even the context of the revolution itself, right? I mean, you think about Lexington and Concord, right? So what was happening mm -hmm. there, right? So what was happening there was the British army was trying to come and take the powder and arms away from these two towns. Um, there was right. a depot of, of powder and arms. But then the question mm -hmm. becomes, okay, well, who had those powder and arms? Who had the right to use them? And the colonials said, well, we do. And the British said, no, we do because we're the crown and we can do what we want, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? Um, but the whole point is the the way that that militia was armed and set up was not just sort of everyone running and grabbing their own guns and powder and arms. It was, hey, let's go to, you know, at least our county and town have organized, if not our state has set up here um, in order to get our powder and arms. And so that, I think, is much more fitting. Right. And it's much more in keeping with the history um, that, you know, the plain history of the revolution um, of what they're saying, which is not just everybody has their own guns. It's, you know, a more local concentration of where these arms are kept. But that doesn't say anything about whether states and localities can regulate guns. In fact, it's quite the opposite, because at Lexington and Concord, they had all the regulation because it was, <laughs> you know, it was the locality that owned the guns and arms. Mm -hmm. And it was that control by that locality that in fact they were you know the revolutionaries were defending they weren't out there defending like mm -hmm. hey i think i ought to be able to have my own gun so leave me alone they were saying no we think our local governments our massachusetts or our county government here ought to be the ones in charge not the british and so that's i think much more fitting and it, and it actually makes sense of the entire amendment right if we're being honest about the meaning of the entire amendment it says the right you know the the um, you know, just to go back, right? So I'm going to get it wrong here if I don't actually <laughs> pull it up because it's so convoluted here. But, you know, but when the amendment itself uh, says, you know, a well-regulated militia, right, it kicks off with that, right? And that mm -hmm. exactly mm -hmm. brings us back to like the militias of Lexington and Concord being necessary to the security of a free state, right? What were they worried about? They were worried about another state, right? A foreign occupying army coming to them, then they say the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, right? So it, all of that historically like fits into the context of what's happening with the colonial militias at the time. And I think Scalia just sort of like fundamentally misunderstands or, and I think in his case, it is misunderstands. I mean, I think Scalia was in, in, in many ways, you know, I think he was trying to be a straight shooter, but, you know, but I think in that way, he fundamentally misunderstands. And a lot of historians have, have shown, right, that he, um, you know, he just he, he, he just he just didn't have it right as far as what the militias were doing, what they look like. And I think one other sort of major I mean, there's a lot of evidence, but there's another his major historical piece of evidence. And this goes back to the Federalists and Anti-Federalists is you think about what happens when a colonial militia tried to rise up. Right. So think about what happens in Shea's rebellion. So Shea right. comes along and says, hey, we think the you know government in Massachusetts is being tyrannical. Yep. Right. And the whole and, and, and basically what happens is the government of Massachusetts squashes them and says, mm -hmm. no, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to be a militia that rises up against the government. And in fact, it freaks out everybody so much 
that they then turn around and say, we're going to write a constitution to make sure this doesn't happen again. So the whole premise of the constitution is to do precisely the opposite of what Scalia is somehow claiming the second amendment is meant to do, which is just utterly contradictory, right? I mean, this is where I just, I think Scalia's reasoning just totally doesn't make sense anymore, right? It just falls apart when you look at the actual history. And so again, if we're supposed to be good originalists here, looking at history, I think Mm -hmm. none of this makes sense. None of it is at the end of the day, especially now is none of it is an honest reading of history. And this is why I think, you know, that Thomas again is playing Calvin ball, right? I mean, he's saying, I'm going to accept this and I'm going to run with it, (laughs) but he's basically saying, Oh, oops, people, real historians have come along and shown that Scalia is wrong. Oops. So not all history counts. You know, that's so, not all history is created equal. Only the history I tell you <laughs> is the history that counts. Yeah, well, hey, I, I'd like to push back a little bit against that. Hold on, before you push I back, you might. Before, before you push back, I actually have to call on Dr. Crumb, please, for those who are listening who are perhaps not late millennials or, late, or, or, or Gen Xers, could you please explain what Calvin Ball is? <laughs> it has okay, nothing to do with yeah. John Calvin, to be clear. Yes. Oh, well, yeah. John, no, that would be an interesting Calvin. Anyway, that's <laughs> a very, that, that, we already know the score of that game. I was going to say, that score is predestined. So yeah. that's we know uh, that one. So, so, so for those of you who may be too old to have uh, experienced the, the best comic strip of all time, mm. um, you know, Calvin and Hobbes uh, was, was written by Bill Waters. And uh, I can't remember the exact years. He stopped maybe in the late, mid, mid 2000s. I can't remember exactly where. Yeah. Um, but basically, yeah, it was a fantastic comic strip about a small boy, a six-year-old boy, and his stuffed tiger who was also alive. It was always ambiguous as to whether Hobbes, the tiger, the stuffed tiger was actually alive or not. Um, but regardless, Calvin and Hobbes, the, this little boy and his tiger, would play a, a game. And every time Calvin started to lose the game, he would change the rules so that he would actually be winning the game. Yeah. And so the comic strip would basically be like, okay, we have to get the ball past the stake. Oh, no, now you have to get it past the stake and through the wicket and over the leg. Oh, now you have to get it, you know past the stake through the wicket over the ledge and you know i don't know into the pond or what you know so he's just right. constantly changing the rules and so that's that's capital yep move the goalposts so continue moving the goalposts okay all right so matt go ahead what is the what is the what is the issue here with dr crumb's uh, uh critique of, <laughs> of thomas yeah i mean i i think hmm trying to figure out how to, how to couch this. So I, I do agree that Thomas is absolutely not taking the complexity of the history seriously. Um, and, but I think it, it's too, one goes too far if one says that history clearly shows um, that sort of the second amendment only has in view um, militias that are sort of run by states. Um, and, and that is not true either. So, so to me, sort of the, the well-regulated militia clause of the Second Amendment doesn't really bracket or place meaningful limits on the keep and bear arms clause, which isn't to say that you can't have real restrictions on gun regulations. I would say you absolutely can, and there's lots yeah. of good reasons to do so. Um, but I don't think history provides a definitive guide that Thomas does, but I don't think that history is maybe quite as sort of obvious and one-sided as uh, Dr. Crumb says it does. Um, so, if, you know, to, to sort of take the point about the British army being a foreign invader, they were not a foreign invader. They were a domestic standing army, and that's what they were concerned about. Um, and the whole point of having a well-regulated, well, let me back up. So the idea of a well-regulated militia sort of regulation um, in sort of 
has different sorts of meanings. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean sort of the, a regulatory regime and the way that often pops into our minds. Um, it, it is often sort of considered that a well-regulated militia is one that is basically um, well-armed and well-disciplined and actually capable, right? Um, and a well-regulated militia is one that is going to require citizens um, to actually have arms. So if you look again to the language of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, and then the right to, of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Um, and so the idea of having a well-regulated militia was for the purpose of sort of the security of the nation as a whole, right? And of course, mm -hmm. the particular states. Um, and to do this, you would have to have people who actually had the right to keep and bear arms. Now, of course, arms have changed a lot. And that is a reason why we want might, we actually would want um, new kinds of restrictions and regulations. Um, the whole point of adding the Second Amendment, um, in some sense, is because the Constitution did include a provision for a standing army. So if we're going to have a standing army, which has lots of other benefits, right, not only for mm -hmm. dealing with um, domestic insurrection, but also for an invasion, right? right. Um, and because we didn't have a standing army, that was part of the reason we weren't able to counter the British standing army, right? So we need a standing army. There is some agreement about that. The anti-federal still didn't like it. And so the idea is like, well, if we're going to have a standing army, <laughs> um, then we want to make sure that we actually um, mm -hmm. can ensure that there are militias that are in place that can deal with the standing army. Um, and that's why the Second Amendment was added. I mean, the whole point of the Bill of Rights was basically say, okay, we're giving all this power to the federal government. Yep. We're really concerned that the federal government isn't going to be too powerful. Um, and so we're going to put all these provisions in to say the government can't do X, it can't do Y, it can't do Z. And when it does these other things, it has to follow these mm -hmm. procedures. And that's what, and by the way, all these rights that we've enumerated um, aren't the only rights that exist. And by the way, all the things that, um, that haven't been sort of, that, that haven't been um, excluded from the states, these are powers that the states still retain, right? So, so I guess I, I tend to think that, that the historical record on sort of militias and the concern uh, about standing armies and the understanding about everyone needing to, to keep and bear arms. Mm -hmm. I don't think that provides any sort of meaningful restriction um, sort of on the right um, to keep and bear arms as enshrined in the second amendment. That doesn't mean that I don't think you can't have other serious regulations mm -hmm. on that right. Um, and I, I would also agree again, um, I think Thomas isn't taking the history seriously. I just don't think that the, the historical understanding mm -hmm. that is attached mm -hmm. to sort of the militia clause provides a meaningful, um, a meaningful restriction on that right. I guess but my quick reaction in this, again, kind of non-expert question um, is if, if that's the context, and I think that's right. I think you're right that that's the context. It's the anti like we're trying to get the anti-federalists to sign onto the constitution. So we put together this bill of rights to kind of essentially be a check and balance on what we've put in the constitution, in this case against the standing army. So that, that I agree with, but if that's true, um, then it seems like the well-regulated becomes even more important to Chris's earlier question. In other words, it does not provide a meaningful check on the power of the national government or against the standing army. If I, as an individual citizen have guns in my house, right. Um, which is how we often get people thinking about it. Like, Oh yeah. If they come to get me, I've got an arsenal. 
right? But like the reality is like you can't, how long can you fight people off from your house with an arsenal, right? This only works as a meaningful check if you have effective collective action, right? And if you have effective collective action, then there has to be organization. And to me, that seems like the, the whole language about keeping and bearing arms is relevant in that particular context. Now that might require that we all have guns in our houses. I'm, I'm open to that possibility, but it seems like that, that like has to be connected to the meaningful check we're trying to create, which is the government doesn't want to challenge a well-armed citizenry, but for that well-armed citizenry to have any effectiveness, like they have to be able to work together. They, they, if they're just there well-armed individually without anyone to bring them together, how does that do anything? Right. Um, so I guess, I don't know. I'm, that's what I'm kind of wrestling with is I'm looking at this text again. I'm like, ah, it just feels like that's really the context that maybe the court isn't doing enough with. Yeah. Right? I mean, I'll, I'll and I think that, Go ahead. Go ahead. Make yeah, I, just say, I think that gets at the other part here. I mean, when we think about the militias, I mean, what the militias were, you know, they were required to meet at regular times. Like yeah, you will meet at right. this time. Um, yeah. And we will, you know, and again, I keep coming back to this, you know, the guns and the ammunition and all this stuff, if you don't have them, we yep. provide them. Yeah. Like, right. you know, you, you are provided with the things you need yeah. by your yeah. local government. Right. And I think that's right. what the court, again, to go back to Andy's point is utterly missing here, right? We're not yeah. talking about everybody just go out and buy, you know, everybody go to your local gun store and buy your <laughs> pistol, right? right? You know, this is, Hey, we are an actual military outfit run yeah. by your local yeah. government. And, yeah. you know, a militia means you're required to show up, <laughs> you know, you can't, you, and, and again, this goes back to that, like, well-regulated part. In other words, we're not just saying everybody go get a gun. We're saying we want you to have a gun and we're going to train you how to use it. We're going to train you the context in which to use it. We're going to make sure you use it right. in the right way. Right. For a specific purpose. Right. For right. a specific right. purpose, right? right? This is all set out. And yep. this is exactly how the militias were run, right? They weren't just sort of every individual person have your gun. Yeah. This was yeah. everybody... Ha, you know, be part of a organized group mm -hmm. called a militia. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, with, with that context in mind, it just becomes pretty clear that like, look, of course, a state or a local government can impose whatever regulations they want on guns, right? They're right. the ones who right. are setting this up. They're the ones who are regulating the militias. They're the ones who are establishing this. And so, you know, to suggest then that a state somehow can't regulate guns, right, is just is just utterly contrary, right, to the entire spirit and history of what this amendment is referencing, right, the whole context and history. And I think, you know, and again, I, I will grant to Matt that, like, I'm, I'm being a little overly sure, right, on all of the on all of the history here. I do think it's fairly clear, though. I mean, I, I will be honest and say I do think it's fairly clear, but I will be, but I will say Scalia is not without his, his justifications, right? There are statements in the debates of the founders mm -hmm. that suggest mm -hmm. that, like, Maybe some people thought of this as being about individuals sometimes, right? And things like that, right? It's not to say that this was a clear cut. Everybody thought exactly the same way, which of course, I mean, okay. just as an Okay, so let me, let me jump in here. Is about, you know, but there, but still, but, you know, but as far as the larger context, right? I think it's straightforward in that sense. But we should probably move on in some ways. Well, I, let me jump, let me, so we've spent a lot of time unpacking how originalists work through these kinds of questions. Originalism is dominant because the court is conservative, while the conservatives subscribe to originalism. But this is um, not the only way of interpreting the Constitution, right. right? Wouldn't it also be possible to say from this clause, whatever the founding fathers thought about the importance of having a well-regulated militia, whatever their justifications were for this, the operative part of this amendment was the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. 
Mm-hmm. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the importance of what regular-legged militias. Maybe that's what they wanted. Who cares what they wanted? They could have said, <laughs> because we think guns are freaking cool, the right to bear arms shall not be infringed, right? We don't care what they think. What we care about is what they actually say as a protection yep. of a right in the Bill of Rights to make sure that the mm-hmm. federal government mm-hmm. doesn't infringe upon it. And, and that's basically what we end up with here is this dictum that we can't infringe upon the right to bear arms, Um for lots of kinds of reasons. I mean, do we need originalism to get to that point? And are, is, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of struggling. I don't know what, what the way, it, sort of the sort of like a plain reading of the Constitution kind of uh, approach is. That te- that's not textualism, is it? Um, no, I think you're right. I think yeah. that is kind of a textualist idea. And I, and I do think. I mean, Scalia does some of that as well, right? I mean, he looks at that phrase, mm-hmm. the right of the people, right, and he notes. In Heller, right, when you look at that phrase elsewhere in the Constitution, like you think about, you know, the right of the people to not be subject to, you know, unlawful and the Fourth Amendment, and I'm going to get the quote slightly wrong here, but it's the right of the people to not be subject to unwarranted searches and seizures. Right. right? And so it uses this, that same phrase, the right of the people. And when you look at that, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. that sure looks like an individual right. You know, this is, you know, this is, this is not a collective right. It's an individual right. And so Scalia does rely on that as well. Right. So if you're looking at that kind of reading, right. Um, then yeah, it seems to it seems to support that. So anyway, I'll let Matt talk because I've I've said a lot here. But yeah, no, and I, I think I think Mitch brings up um, a number of good points, and I think Chris, you're right too. I mean, I guess you know, whenever the text becomes less clear because of how it's constructed, um, or because terms yeah. have archaic meanings that have been lost, um, mm-hmm. or the more complex um, the issue is a question, the more benefit you might get not always, but you might get out of looking to sort of the original intent and idea behind the text, right? right? right. So sometimes, you know, um, originalism uh, sort of provides a really useful supplement to um, textualism, although when um, the original intent is is really muddy and it's complicated, mm-hmm. then it becomes less useful, right? And I think mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. essentially um, that's where Thomas runs into problems and even Barrett in her concurring opinion kind of points it out more or less, the sort of the serious sort of um, limits um, that attend um, an originalist interpretation, even though she herself generally likes to use an originalist approach. Um, mm-hmm. I sort of, I, I I'm glad Mitch sort of brought up sort of um, that last point is that if you look at the Bill of Rights as a whole, the Bill of Rights as a whole is very much concerned with individual rights and what individuals may do and protecting individuals specifically, we'll add this, specifically against what um, restrictions imposed by the federal government or actions of the federal government. So the First Amendment um, basically says that Congress can't do certain things. The federal government can't um, have, you know, place restrictions on um, mm-hmm. religious exercise, on the freedom of speech mm-hmm. or the press, right? Um, when the federal government um, is bringing legal uh, criminal cases sort of against um, citizens, right? There's all these other protections of reasonable searches and seizures and, and other protections mm-hmm. in this, in the other amendments, amendments basically four, five, six, seven, and eight, that specifies here's sort of the due process um, that citizens are owed by the federal government. Of course, the Bill of Rights only originally pertained to the federal government right. and placed mm-hmm. restrictions on what the federal government might do. Um, and so the understanding is the states um, could essentially um, place their own um, restrictions on yep. certain sorts of rights, um, yep. essentially. And of course, what we saw is a lot of states did place a lot of restrictions on rights, especially um, with regards to sort of slavery yep. um, and the yep. disparate treatment of different sorts of people, right? And so that's where you get the 14th Amendment saying everyone has sort of equal protection under the laws. And it's the 14th right. Amendment that then becomes a mechanism for actually 
um, yep. trying to apply the different components of the Bill of Rights to the state. So that not only can the federal government not infringe on certain individual rights that are specified in the Bill of Rights, but now states can't do that as well um, because right. a lot of states did do that um, in a lot of different ways. And so um, the, the decision here in the Bruin case is basically yep. a continuation of that process of sort of selective incorporation of the Bill of Rights through the 14th Amendment. But the emphasis here is on individual rights. But of course, again, back to Mitch's point, um, certainly the states did have regulations on the use of firearms. um, And part of creating a well-regulated militia was not merely having firearms available um, that students, citizens had a right to own and to bear, which I have pointed out, but as Mitch pointed out, a well-regulated, and Andy pointed out as well, a well-regulated militia does require um, the states to sort of offer supplies and training, right, Mm -hmm. um, and organization to those militias as well. Of course, Thomas would come back and say, but you can't have any of that unless the citizens um, have some sort of right um, in and of themselves to organize themselves. And that gets back to the anti-federalist point, citizens Mm -hmm. being able to organize themselves to be effective, right? Mm Because sometimes... Mm -hmm. Um, you can't necessarily trust the state or the federal government to do that. So we can go sort of around in circles on this. Um, I still come back to the, the idea that there's nothing in the Second Amendment that prevents um, states from having real restrictions on sort of on the right to keep and bear arms, real regulations, yeah. you yeah. might say, that don't necessarily constitute um, a, an infringement of a right. And, and that's really what it comes down to. Like, what does it mean for a regulation to infringe upon a right? Right. Right. Yeah. That's in the eye of a beholder, Mm -hmm. right? For Mm -hmm. some people, an infringement is any sort of restriction, right? For some people, there's pretty much no restriction that is an infringement of a right. Um, And so really setting aside, you know, what, you know, like, because the text history and tradition is complicated because, you know, the text of the Second Amendment itself is very open-ended and infringement can be read in any sort of direction. Right. Um, And that's why we are continually sort of running around in circles, having these sorts of debates. Um, And ultimately, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, ultimately, you can read it how you want um, and different people do. And we're going to continue to have um, those sorts of debates. So, yeah. Yeah, So I think I I think there's a lot of great stuff there. I mean, I do. And I I will just say, I mean, I think, um, you know, obviously for for all the. I, I, yeah, I think I think I think for all the running around, I think we're probably close <laughs> in terms of our in terms of our final conclusions. But, probably, sure, I think so. Um, yeah. But uh, but but I do want to I do want to highlight because I think what you're saying is actually really really good, and I think it like mm-hmm. brings us to like the next part of like Thomas's reasoning. Like so, the next part of so like he he reviews Heller at length, like he spends a lot of time in his opinion going over that, but then he like wants to go in and he says, okay, when can you regulate? bearing of arms, right? And so mm-hmm. his argument mm-hmm. comes back to exactly what Matt is saying here, right? So let's just grant, right, for sake of argument, <laughs> let's just grant that, that, that Thomas is right, that Heller is right, you know, that this is an individual right and all of that, right? Mm-hmm. So just, you know, pretend I'm, you know, I've talked nonsense up to now. But anyway, <laughs> you know, so just to grant all that, right, you know, Thomas yep. then proceeds exactly as Matt has said to say, okay, is there actually a history and tradition of regulating guns? Right. And he goes through and basically at length, right. And argues that there's not, right. There's not this tradition of regulating Mm -hmm. the carrying of guns. Now the issue of course, as we've already said is to do so, he has to sort of like ignore a number of things, right. He, he, he says like, you know, the respondents from New York have pointed out that there were at least three States that had regulations on the carrying of guns at the time of the ratification of 
the Bill of Rights. There were some that had them, you know, shortly thereafter. And then there were a number of states that had them, you know, around the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment. But then he basically says, well, yeah, and then also, of course, English common law, right? So English common law going all the way back. This is one of the funnest parts. If you go and listen to the (laughs) oral arguments of the court on this case, if you go all the way back to the 1300s, ooh, yes, the the hallowed 1300s, you will find the statute of, uh, you know, the... the, uh, it's called the, the Statute of Northampton, right? Um, where the where, where the where English common law, it was ruled that you basically couldn't bear arms threateningly in like a crowded space, like a marketplace, right? Or whatever. So you couldn't bring your, you can't bring your sword and your spear or whatever. Like, I don't know what all they had, you know, your- mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Halberds, mark- let's go with Halberds. Yes, thank you. There you go. <laughs> so at, all, at any rate, you know, and so, but, and so basically, you know, what, what, what the response have done is they've said, look, there were regulations on the carrying of guns. They were regulations yep. in English common law, which of course the colonies adopted and mostly kind of accepted. Yep. Yep. And there were regulations in some states. And Thomas just sort of says, yeah, but those don't count. They're not enough. And he just kind of says, this isn't enough to establish a tradition. And to me, like when, as soon as I read that, I just want to throw my hands up and say, well, what on earth does? Like, d- right. d- does, d- yeah. does it establish a tradition when we've hit four? What about five? about six right thomas tell us tell us please what in your calvin ball mind tells us when we've got a tradition here right i mean you know do we have to hit the wicket now or do we have to get all the way over the ridge right you know which one is it how far do we go with the history here and you know and so and so that's where i think even if we grant right my point in saying this is even if we grant that this is an individual right as matt was saying and that you know all of that history is correct there still is arguably, right, a history and tradition of regulating the carrying of firearms. And the states have done this, right? States have done this since the founding. They've done this since the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And, you know, New York's gun law is kind of an example of this, even to some degree. I mean, it's over a century old, like it's super old. It's been there forever. And the court just now, like, you know, well over a hundred years later is like, whoops, actually, we don't think that's, that counts. Like, you know, but, but how it was enforced changed, but anyway, well, okay. So. All right. All right. But anyway, you know, but, 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 but you get the idea here. Right. And this is where, and I think Matt and I probably agree to some degree on this, right. That, you know, that the Thomas is kind of playing fast and loose with history here. And I think, and, and I also think that, comes back right to the earlier issue as well is like well why didn't we have why, why weren't there more states right why weren't there more than like three states that regulated the carrying of firearms around the founding right we might ask that and the answer of course is is because they already accepted that they could be regulated because they were militias right <laughs> you know and this is where i think you know thomas sort of like dismissing that part of the history is sort of like again stacks the deck because he's just dismissing all of the regulations that actually were there as sort of like, well, that's about militias and all that. And that's not really what we're talking about. But that, you know, again, is him sort of selectively saying, yeah, we're just not counting the evidence that actually shows I'm wrong, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, and so, and so I just, I, I just, I just, I have trouble with like the reasoning of this, even if you accept, right. Thomas's framing of the mm-hmm. history, right. I have trouble mm-hmm. accepting even then his reasoning on what the limits of the state should be. Right. I just think he gets it wrong on both ends. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're, Thomas actually does accept there are a number of different sorts of regulations that even within the tradition that yeah. point to the possibility of regulations now being constitutional, right? So let me read you. Thomas, quote, nothing in our analysis should be interpreted to suggest the unconstitutionality of the 43 states shall issue licensing regimes under which a general desire for self-defense is sufficient to obtain a permit. 
Because these licensing regimes do not require applicants to show an atypical need for armed self-defense, they do not necessarily prevent, quote, law-abiding responsible citizens, quote, end quote, from exercising their Second Amendment right to public carry. Rather, it appears that these shall issue regimes, regimes which often require applicants to undergo a background check or pass a firearm safety course are designed to ensure only that those bearing arms in the jurisdiction are in fact law-abiding responsible citizens. What he's doing is he's targeting how the New York law was actually used. So again, you have to, he's not just, he's not saying like you can't have any restrictions. He's not even saying that your shall issue regimes can't have serious restrictions. He's, he's like, that's not in question. The question is, does the state have discretionary power to basically say you get arms and you don't in a completely arbitrary way, which is what New York was doing. So basically these guys, they within sort of the New York law mm-hmm. said we are applying mm-hmm. um, to carry arms because um, we live in an area that is very dangerous. And we want to be able to carry arms because there's other people walking around carrying guns illegally. We want to be yeah. able to protect ourselves. And the New York mm-hmm. said, mm-hmm. state said, you're feeling like you need self def- uh, and it, your, your felt need <laughs> essentially yeah. for carrying arms for self-defense is not sufficient proof. Right. So there is such mm-hmm. an onerous burden of proof on the applicants to show yeah. that their need for self-defense was so atypical to require them to carry a handgun, basically saying that is whatever we might say about the line between sort of a right and a privilege that clearly crosses the line mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. in sort of a privilege and a, and a burden on this right that is clearly an infringement. That's what mm-hmm. he's saying. And he's saying there's nothing in the text history and tradition um, that ultimately says this is okay, right? So I, I don't think you're actually trying to be kind about this. I don't think you're actually reading Thomas quite right on this. I, I agree text history and tradition and originalism doesn't provide the sort of clarity that we want. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think he has some point that text history and t- tradition does seem to rule out or at least sort of suggest that this sort of discretionary power of the state um, is problematic and does constitute mm-hmm. an infringement. We can disagree on whether it does. Again, back to my previous point. But I think we have to keep in mind mm-hmm. specifically um, the... Yeah. The case in point. And this is where I think Kavanaugh's um, concurrence in which he's joined by Roberts is really important because he's saying there is a lot of other restrictions um, that could be constitutional here. It, this The problem has to do with sort of how this New York law um, was implemented and sort of the, the discretionary, arbitrary power of the state to basically put restrictions on a right. It's not merely about the restrictions on a right. It has to do with how the state actually goes about placing those restrictions. And that's what this case is ultimately about, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe just two quick comments on all, all that. I mean, one is, I just want to put an exclamation point on like the importance of the 14th Amendment and all this. I mean, when we think about the earlier history, the pre-1868 history, I do think the way the court has understood the 14th Amendment in regard to other rights really comes into play. Like how relevant is that history at some point? Because we've said, you know, pre-1868, this really was up to the states and the states had broad discretionary power. This just said the federal government, the national government cannot do this, right? Um, After 1868, we start to understand things differently. So take a different example. I mean, you know, pre-1868, I mean, you know, there there were states with established religion, right? And that was fine. That was not... That was not a violation of the national constitution because it just meant, you know, the the state can't establish religion means the national government can't, right? Um, The states could, and they did, and that was fine. That was accepted. 
I don't think we could do that today. Like if Minnesota decides like we want to have the Lutheran church as the national church of, or the state church of Minnesota, that would probably be challenged in court and struck down because of the 14th amendment is my guess, right? I don't think we have that power anymore, even though, you know, 200 years ago um, we would have, right? So I think that's one point. The second point I would just highlight in this discussion, I'm glad you brought in the, the kind of concurrence by Kavanaugh and Roberts is it's worth noting. I mean, like Thomas is almost always on the edge of the court here, right? I mean, like in terms of where he lands, if you think about the court as an ideological spectrum, um, Thomas is sitting at the far right of it, right? I mean, so so his views are, you know, they're representative of his position, right? Of his understanding, which often ends up being a little idiosyncratic um, and a little out there and not even reflective of kind of the, the kind of mainstream conservative position. So I think it's worth, it's worth highlighting that, that I think, you know, the Roberts, Kavanaugh, you know, place is probably more um, kind of where the, the court majority position is landing than Thomas. Well, wait, hold on, though. I'm speaking as somebody who's who's not a court watcher, who's just sort of a lay, admittedly political scientist, but this is not my bailiwick. If that's the case, why did Thomas write the opinion? Why, why wasn't the opinion Kavanaugh and Roberts? I mean, they have to distribute them around. So I, that's a good question. Um, why, why Roberts gave it to him. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a good question. Why I don't I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but well, ultimately, I mean, it also comes back to I mean, you know, six justices were willing to sign on to it. I mean, you yeah, know, yeah, they it's are. It's not that you know, and they all say you know, I mean, even the concurrences that kind of you know, like with uh, you know the the Roberts uh, and Kavanaugh uh, concurrence, right? Even there, I mean, they're not sort of like really. You know, they don't they don't say like we 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 reject the majority opinion, right? Sure, I mean, they're sure. You know, they're still sort of accepting this. But I do want to say like I mean, so just to come back to like this 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 larger point here. So this is from page thirty five of the um uh, of Tom or well, it's page thirty five in the PDF. I don't know if it's, <laughs> um, uh, but at any rate, uh, this is this this is this is what Thomas says, right? He says he is seeking, and this is quote, a tradition of broadly prohibiting the public carry of commonly used firearms for self defense, unquote. Right. He says, that's what I'm looking for in history. And what I want to point out. And so and so and so if you accept that. Right. If you accept that as a reasonable standard. Right. Which I think is what Matt is arguing here. Right. Is to say that, mm-hmm. you know, he's you know, that, that, that what we're looking for is, you know, as, as Thomas is saying, what we're looking for is a tradition that actually does what New York, the kind of thing New York was doing. Right. Which is, you know, regulating who can carry firearms in public and who can't. Right. And so Thomas says, look, this is what I'm looking for. But what I, I guess my argument here is that is a really specific and weird set of guidelines for saying we must find this thing that is X, Y, Z, A, B, D, X, Z, W, whatever in history, exactly like that. And a lot of it <laughs> before we're willing to sort of like say this happened. And it's just like that, 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 that entire standard, right, is just completely made up. Right. I mean, that's just Thomas, again, like setting his own goalposts. And I just think that's and, and first of all, and it neglects a lot of things. And this brings us to kind of the Breyer descent to some degree here. Right. Because I think Breyer hits some of this stuff really well. Right. I mean, Breyer points out he's like, look, first of all, that just setting up those kinds of really specific requirements neglects the fact and we've already talked a little about this, that firearms have changed. Like guns have changed. The way people handle guns has changed. And so to sort of expect like, you know, in 1791 for them to have a regulation that uh, broadly prohibits public carry of commonly used firearms for self-defense, right? You know, it's just unrealistic because it's a totally different context of guns. And the same thing applies in 1868. Like, I mean, yep. you know, and Breyer yep. points this out. He says, look, he says, what you're looking for in history, this really narrow, precise thing in history, he says, 
is just ludicrous, right? That that's the right. standard you're setting because history is history <laughs> and it's changed, right? And this is where, and I guess I'll just right. say this now too, so Matt can, you know, can try to smack me down on, on both uh, of <laughs> This is oh, where please. I, but this is where, um, and I do appreciate the pushback because I mean, I'm, you know, I know I'm, 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 I, have, I have strong views on this, but at any rate, so, um, <laughs> but at any rate, I mean, this is where, and this is where I think Alito too, I was, I'll just be honest, I was really put off by Alito's concurrence <laughs> because I, you know, if you look at Alito, right, I, I'll be honest. I mean, I think when I read Alito, he's actually almost, um, he's really kind of being condescending and almost snotty um, to Justice Breyer. Right. Um, and so, you know, he's basically saying like, you know, I mean, he says, you know, much of the dissent seems designed to obscure the specific question the court has decided. Right. And therefore, it may, you know, helpful to provide a succinct summary of what we have of what we have actually held. Right. He's like, you moron, Briar, you didn't know what we actually held. Right. And I just think that's, you know, I don't think Alito talks like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, actually. That's how Mitch Crumb anyway, plays him on um, Saturday. His speeches <laughs> have been actually pretty, um, anyway, interesting. So, uh, but at any rate, you know, and then he goes on, right? And he's like, and, and he basically is kind of saying like, look, you know, we're just looking, you know, he's, he basically says, you know, Briar, why didn't you deal with this actual history? Which Briar has, right? Briar has said the history has changed. He's pointing this out, right? You can't find this needle in a haystack. And Alito's just sort sure. of like, well, why didn't you go and look for it, right? And it's just like, <laughs> it just utterly misses the point. Right. And it's just, and again, it's an exercise in obscuring. It's an exercise in, you know, in some ways almost intellectual dishonesty. Right. And saying that like Breyer didn't deal with those things, which he precisely did. Right. For that reason. So anyway, so, you know, so, so you have that, so, you know, so, so Breyer does deal with those things, right. That those things have changed. Um, and, and, and again, unless you're dealing with Thomas's you have to deal with it exactly the way I've said it, right? And you haven't done it the way I said it type of reasoning, then it just it, it just falls apart, right? It just doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, again, part of it is, um, I think none of the, with maybe exception of Kavanaugh, but I, I think Thomas and Lito and Breyer are not at their best in any of their opinions. I don't <laughs> think Thomas needed to do his massive sort of selective walk through history to arrive at the conclusion. I think a far more basic textual analysis would have gotten him that. Yep. Um, so I don't think he needed the rest of the other stuff, actually. I think that only weakened his case. Um, yeah, Alita was snarky and didn't, didn't appreciate where Breyer sort of pushed back on Thomas's historical interpretation and also Breyer's you know, very valid point about how you know, the nature of firearms has changed. On the other hand, Breyer's, you know, first part of the opinion, he just trots out all of these utterly irrelevant sort of gun statistics that have nothing to do with the sorts of crimes that we prevented by the New York law, right? And, right. and just sort of, right. it was basically just a series of liberal talking points. <laughs> and that's not as good as Breyer can be because Breyer can be very sharp and on point. So yeah. I don't feel like any of them sort of cover themselves in glory. Um, <laughs> Or reasonableness um, in in sort of the approach that they take, which maybe suggests um, <laughs> maybe suggests something about sort of our broader sort of um, cultural ability to have a reasonable conversation about guns, but also suggests that you know this is a very complex issue. Um, so I, I don't know what I want to say beyond that, um, but I, I didn't really like any, any of those opinions uh, all that much. So yeah. I guess the one other thing I'll say, and I, and I, I mean, to some degree, I, I agree. Like, I mean, having all the, having all the statistics, like, isn't, 
the thing. Although I do think, I mean, I th- and I think what Breyer is doing in like a broader context, and I think this is, I think this is valid in this sense, right? Which is to say, look, as the court is whittling away at like what states can do, right? As they're saying, mm-hmm. you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, right? I think what Breyer is essentially saying is like, this is the trajectory, right? Mm-hmm. As states have whittled away at their um, gun laws, we've seen this proliferation of gun crimes, right? And there's you know, this, you know, I mean, it's not hard, right, to look at the statistics, right, which is mm-hmm. which Breyer's highlighting here, right, and see that the U.S. has way higher, like, homicide rates, our, you know, yeah. our rates of murders are just, like, off the charts in comparison yeah. to other major developed countries, you know, and our rates of mm-hmm. gun violence, you know, I mean, some people, sometimes people, like, trot out, like, well, what about stabbings, right? I mean, you know, other countries have, like, you know, maybe five yeah. stabbings per million of people. We have, you know, over 60 deaths per millions of people from guns, right, you know, every year, right? I mean, it's not even close, right? <laughs> you know? And so I think what Breyer's trying to do, right, is he's trying to highlight that and saying, the mm-hmm. more the court ties the hands of the states, the more they are essentially promoting this trend, right? And the more that they are also then neglecting, again, to come back to history, right? The history of how firearms have um, have evolved, right? And changed over time. And so in that sense, I do think like the, the statistics like tell us something important, right? They tell the court that like, look, what you're doing here, right? Is going to have real consequences, right? In terms of, in terms, mm-hmm. in terms of how we understand um, the history and what we're doing here, right? And I and I do think that's you know, and, and I think just to go back to one other thing that Breyer brings up, and I think this is a good point, right? I mean, and part of what he says too, right, in defend in, in thinking about these statistics is he says, look, these are complicated issues. The courts are not the best place to decide these issues. It's best to let decide these issues and think about these difficult policy questions in legislatures. And so I think what Breyer is saying is he says, look, we have a complicated gun violence problem in America. This shouldn't be, we shouldn't be deciding this in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court shouldn't be trying to figure out these policy questions with these kinds of really life and death kinds of consequences here. This should be decided in state legislatures. New York's trying to do that. Other states are doing it in other ways. We should let them do it. And, you know, again, given the history of the Second Amendment, right, which he also notes, you know, there have been examples of states restricting guns since the beginning, since the get-go, and even before the beginning of the Constitution, there's no reason to think that they can't, right? Following following history, anyway. So in that way, I do think like there's. I agree. Like I mean, Breyer probably belabors it too much, and you know, it's it, it to some degree. I think you're absolutely right. It's obviously a rhetorical thing, reflects the ideologicalization of the court, which is not great. Mm-hmm. But um, but you know, but nonetheless, right? I do think there's a valid point that he's making there. Yeah, I think we yeah. got. Oh, Andy, you can go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, but to Matt's earlier point, I mean, they, their, their disagreement ultimately is not really about whether you can regulate, but whether this was an appropriate regulation, right? In other words, I mean, because they, they are agreeing, like the, the states can still, it's, you know, they can still have a process, right? They can still, I mean, the shall administrations do do that, right? It's just a question of to what extent can you regulate before you get to that point where you're infringing, right? And, mm-hmm. and they're landing on New York was infringing, right? So... So I think that's that's where I get like yeah where I uh, I don't think that was maybe the most effective by Breyer in that sense because that's not really the point of debate maybe he's right that the trajectory could go there but that's not really where things are at some level yeah I, I think what's what's lost in in sort of on the policy side of this whole conversation is that um, even if the court you know continues its trajectory of striking down sort of the most onerous sorts of restrictions there are still just tons of things that states can do 
constitutionally that the court hasn't struck down, um, that could actually make a difference. Um, but that some states have done, but that other states aren't. Or laws that are in the books that are effective um, if they were implemented, but they're not implemented. So there are just a, a whole boatload of things that we could be doing within the boundaries of what the court says is kosher, right? And so let me, let me just walk through some of these, right? And again, some of the states have these sorts of laws in the books, but they don't enforce them. Like that is a huge problem as well. So, um, so you know, right now you can have extensive laws on background checks. You can have laws that delay the sales of firearms to young buyers. You can have red flag laws. You can have licensing requirements that uh, require sort of training and certification, right? All those things can make a difference. Some states have them. Um, but don't enforce them well. Um, some states do, right? Um, and even beyond laws that have to do specifically with just um, gun regulations, there's a lot of the things that states can do to actually help deal with gun violence, right? So more resources for police detectives and prosecutors who are just not well-funded at all across many states. Um, there's actually, there's a really interesting article in The Atlantic. I'm blinking on the, the author, but he basically said there is a absolutely massive backlog of of, of cases, a lot of them violent crimes in our court systems because a lot of our courts shut down from COVID and some of them are, are still not back at capacity. So you yeah. have these people basically uh, accused of crimes who are stuck in the system. And there is a wealth of social science literature that says the best deterrent for crime is not sort of the the extent or the severity of punishment, but the uh, but the certainty and the swiftness of punishment. But right now, there is neither certainty nor swiftness in many jurisdictions across the United States, and that is in some sense actually correlated to um, higher rates of crime in these jurisdictions. Yeah. Right. So, mm -hmm. so we have a huge problem with sort of underfunding, um, with sort of effective sort of. Um, an effective sort of mm -hmm. justice system. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have sufficient resources sort of for mental health. It turns out that most of the gun violence has to do with, can be traced to mental health issues, um, yep. whether it's yep. mental health caused sort of um, homicide, but certainly suicide as well, um, which yep. is a far greater problem than homicide, it turns out. So it turns out there's a lot of different things that we can do with regards to mental health, our criminal justice system and with gun re regulations in general, that would actually together collectively across the states move the needle if the states actually did these things. And if the laws that are on the books were actually enforced well. Unfortunately, this is not, and all this can be done within the parameters of what the court allows, right? So people who are up in arms about like, well, the court's striking down these restrictions and we can't have them. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's certain things that are out of bounds, yeah. but there's a lot of things that we can do that would make a difference mm -hmm. that we're not doing. And I think that's something that's mm -hmm. completely lost um, in this conversation. Mm -hmm. And of course, exacerbating some of this is um, gun advocates on the right who basically say that any sort of restriction right. of right. any variety is a gross violation of right and of the right to, to bear arms and they're not willing to have even sort of, sort of reasonable yep. conversation about it. Yep. And that's a huge problem as well. So, yep. um, and then of course, those on the left are saying like, we have to ban all these different types of guns. We have to ban sort of assault weapons. We have to ban certain uh, magazine sizes. And it turns out that these mm -hmm. sorts of restrictions don't have a great effect, but, and they also just tend to take off people on the right. So that's not productive, right? So there's all these things we could do. People are willing to come to the table and have a reasonable conversation. Of course, all of this is just sort of downstream of sort of the dysfunctional place that our politics is in right yeah. now. So yeah. rant over. But, but on that note, I mean, like, this seems like maybe a good moment to think about, like, we did actually pass, yes. right? And so I, I'm curious to hear uh, Mitch and Matt, like what you thought of the bill that our national government did pass, which was really the first significant gun bill in like 28 years. 
Um, so pretty much the first one in your, you know, almost in y'all's memory. Um, <laughs> are you old enough to remember Actually, the last yes. one? Chris and I are old enough. Um, but <laughs> uh, that's a long time ago, 28 years. So what did you think of this bill? And yeah, will that help? Um, I'll, I'll just very briefly walk through it and Mitch can, can say whether he has much confidence in uh, the effectiveness of it. So it's called the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, signed into law July 11th by President Biden. Um, it passed 65-33 in the Senate, which is actually fairly fairly impressive. 15 Republicans crossed over. Very impressive. Um, yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, John Cornyn, um, the Republican senator from Texas, was basically mm-hmm. the Republican lead on this. And he's got a lot of flack in Texas from this. But um, but good for him for actually taking this mm-hmm. seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, it passed uh, 234 to 193 in the House. So 14 Republicans crossing over there, obviously a much lower proportion. Um, there's a lot of different provisions of this. Um, mm-hmm. So it's nothing sort of truly sort of sweeping, but there's a lot of interesting pieces, which I'm curious if in the long run, it's going to help. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's funding for mental health programs and school security upgrades in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, sort of federal sort of monetary incentives for states implementing red flag laws and other risk prevention measures. Um, there's more rigorous uh, background checks, um, mm-hmm. federally required background checks uh, for people under the age of 21. Um, there's also um, bans on purchases for those convicted of domestic violence, including um, domestic violence in sort of non-marital relationships. So this is the closure of the so-called sort of boyfriend loophole of boyfriends mm-hmm. committing sort of violence against um, domestic violence, essentially. And that that was actually a subject of, of some um, some debate in the lead up to the passage of this bill. So there's a lot of different pieces. Um, it doesn't have so much to do with straight up banning certain types of guns, right? But putting restrictions on sort of their ownership and also other measures to provide, um, to help states sort of deal with um, so the security problems that come with widespread uh, uh, firearm ownership. So um, I think it's a move in the right direction. Um, I hope this nudges states in a good direction. We'll, we'll see if it has an effect. Uh, it, it is encouraging to see that um, this did pass on a bipartisan basis. And there's even yes. some Republicans that are saying, hey, this is this is getting ridiculous. We got to do something. So mm-hmm. um, I found that encouraging, not in an overwhelming sense, but um, yeah. encouraging nonetheless. I think that's right, the right was, characterization, yeah. um, encouraging, but not in an overwhelming sense. I yeah. mean, I think something that you kind of, you mentioned, Matthew, but didn't, I want to make sure people understand. This legislation doesn't create federal red flag laws. It incentivizes states to create red flag laws, which is very different. And yep. states that are uh, really run by uh, conservative legislatures and conservative governors might just thumb their nose to the federal government and refuse to mm-hmm. implement red flag laws. Mm-hmm. Um uh, regardless of the incentive. And so this really does, that's the way this passed was basically a kick to the option to create red flag laws back down to the States with, you know, federal incentives. And so we'll see how much actually gets implemented on a state by state basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Overall. I mean, again, I, I concur on all that. I mean, I think it's encouraging. I think it's obviously steps, you know, good steps in the right direction. I think, I guess, I guess the one part that I, I do struggle somewhat with is this idea of linking gun violence with mental health. I think that mm-hmm. is um, unhelpful and possibly dangerous in a number of ways. Um, partially, I think it's unhelpful in that, you know, America is not unique in mental health situation. You know, if you look at other countries, mm-hmm. we have the same levels of mental illness as, you know, other developed mm-hmm. countries. 
Um, so the fact that we have a vastly higher homicide rate really isn't caused, right? There's not a causal line between mental health and our enormously high, you know, mag- order of magnitude higher homicide rate, right, here in the United States. So I think linking those two is sometimes a dangerous way of sort of like policymakers trying to trying to um, dismiss, right, the real causes, right, of our enormous mm-hmm. homicide rate. And so I think you know, to the extent that we're doing that, right, we're actually possibly even putting a, you know, an unhelpful stigma, right, on people who otherwise might seek out mental health um, resources, right, because you're basically saying, we think you're dangerous, and you might kill people, when in fact, that's not actually really what's going on, right, what's going on is we have way too many guns on the streets, right, I mean, that's the bottom line in terms of policy, mm-hmm. right, it's way too easy to get a gun, there's way too many guns out there, and that leads to a whole lot of death, right, that other countries don't have to, don't have to face, including, you know, a whole lot of children getting slaughtered here in the United States, so, mm-hmm. you know, so I mean, so I think, so I think all of that emphasis on mental health, I'm all for, you know, emphasizing mental health resources and all of those things, you know, and one other provision, you know, that came out of this is like, you know, the, the national suicide hotline got a huge burst. That's all great. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. um, those are good things. Um, uh, I'm not sure that that's the answer to gun violence. Right. I don't think that's Mm -hmm. really the, I don't, and I, and I think, you know, um, that doesn't really get at the real heart of the issue. And I think that goes Mm -hmm. back to, again, thinking about these policies, right. I mean, it is true that States can do a lot of things, um, you know, still, and, and this goes back, you know, just to circle all the way back here, you know, it is true that states can still do a lot of things, but I think what this case is doing, right, is it's telling, it again is telling states, right, this goes back to Breyer's critique, right, it's, it's telling states there's a lot you can't do, mm-hmm. and the moment we are telling states there's a lot you can't do, um, you know, is the moment that we're basically leaving lots and lots of ways for these kinds of, you know, tragic events to continue happening, right? And that, I think, is Breyer's point. I think he's, he's on to something, right? I mean, I think, you know, every time you bind the states is, is, you know, and this is where he, I think he's somewhat right, at least in highlighting these statistics, right? Every time you bind the states is a time you're basically making it easier for these things to happen um, and ignoring the real problem, right? Which is not mental health, the real problem is, um, you know, the real problem is, is the enormous persistence of guns and the ease of having them both in public um, and in, you know, and for people to, to, to pick them up. Yeah. I think Switzerland is a really interesting sort of, sort of case of how you could have a society with very extensive gun ownership, but a much healthier gun culture mm-hmm. and, uh, and sort of state involvement in sort of promoting sort of a proper use of guns. So for example, um, you know, Switzerland has basically the most liberal gun laws, one of the, some of the most liberal gun laws in the world, certainly in Western Europe. Many people own guns, including long barrel semi-automatics. Um, and you might say that gun culture is even more sort of seeped into sort of Swiss culture by and large, um, in part due to its mandatory military service requirements, right? Um, and how everyone at an early age um, is taught how to handle firearms. Um, and so it doesn't, so gun ownership and gun use doesn't, isn't polarized the way it is here in the United States. And what this means is that uh, Switzerland is able to, even though you have very widespread um, gun ownership um, and people can carry uh, weapons, um, they have very sort of strict licensing procedures. Uh, gun licenses require extensive background checks and vetting um, for mental health included, interestingly. Um, there's you know training um, and certification that has tied to competence and ability to use a firearm, not only sort of your, your mental health, but your ability as well. 
Um, and so, um, and so Switzerland doesn't have um, higher homicide and suicide rates in the Western Europe uh, than the rest of Western Europe, um, even though it actually has sort of um, extensive mm-hmm. sort of firearm ownership. So, mm-hmm. so it's interesting to see how a country can do that, yep. um, but it has a very sort of different sort of culture and sort of system of laws that allow it, allows it to do that. Unfortunately, the United States is nowhere close to that. Um, and part of what it would take is sort of a shift in culture um, and an attendant sort of shift in the sorts of laws that can be on the books. And I, I'd be curious, like, um, if some of sort of the laws that we see in Switzerland would sort of pass constitutional muster with this particular court. Thomas might yeah. kick them out. What would be interesting to me is like, OK, could you get could you get um, uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh on board with some of these? Mm-hmm. And I think you probably could. But again, I'm, I'm not really sure. Where, so, yeah, but certainly we can do more. Um, within the bounds of what the, uh, the Supreme Court allows, but we're not. So yeah. it is a public policy puzzle, honestly. Um, it is true what Mitch is saying that the United States has an order of magnitude greater uh, homicide by gun rate yep. than almost any other developed uh, uh, industrialized country. Mm-hmm. It is also true that we have a lot of guns. A lot of guns, a lot of guns. Um, There's an enormous number of firearms present in American society, which leads to a 393 million to be exact. Which leads to a statistical puzzle. Believe it or not, although what what we've just said is true, that America has this huge excess of of gun homicides and gun suicides, I'll, I'll add as well. The average gun in the United States is safer in the hands of an American than the average gun is in almost any other Western developed country. So it's not, so although it's true that reducing the number of guns in our society might have the effect of reducing the number of homicides, suicides, et cetera, the typical gun, the, 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 the modal gun held in the United States is held safely and held safer than many other guns that around the world. And used um, safely, let's say. Yes. So. Held, used mm-hmm. safely. Correct. Um, what that just means is we have so many guns in the United States that uh, even despite our higher level of violence, most yep. of those guns are not used for violence. Mm-hmm. So how do we how do we create how do we resolve this kind of public this at a public policy level, right? How do we try to keep people who would use guns for violence from doing so while at the same time yep. protecting the right of other Americans to hold and use those guns safely. Right. And I'm not saying anything novel here, but it, it, it is, it does present this public policy kind of puzzle in mm-hmm. many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, mm-hmm. you know, part yeah. of it is like, because of the second amendment and the wording, you know, like you're always going to have, you know, unless the court really, you know, the court composition shifts and you have the court, like really coming down to restrictions, you're probably always going to have a lot of guns in the United States. Yep. Um, the easiest way to really have restrictions is, you know, uh, pass a constitutional amendment. That'll never happen. So the question is, OK, we can have this sort of debate about what the Second Amendment allows, which I think is a really important one to have. And I think we've had a good one here, actually. Um, but I think you also have to come back to like, OK, what, what are the things that given given that we do have the Second Amendment yep. um, and there will probably always be some extensive gun ownership because of that? Um what sorts of things can we do that would move the needle um, collectively? Um, and I think that's that's where we should be having more conversations. We've seen a little bit more mm-hmm. of that with Congress. I hope mm-hmm. we keep pushing in that direction. Um, yeah. And I hope it doesn't take, you know, 10 more sort of mass shootings to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah.
So before we wrap for the day, I do want to throw one sort of meta issue at you guys. Okay. And that is, that is the following. Uh, if you've listened to our last three podcasts and you've, you've really got a good handle on what Dobbs is doing and what Bruin is doing in this case, um, you can understand so the nuances of the reasoning between those two cases and the critiques of those reasonings. But if you're just a sort of a lay person following the decisions of the court, there's a rationale by which you can understand why the courts, uh, the pu- public trust in the court has dropped precipitously over the last couple of years. You've got the Dobbs case, which basically says uh, we need to take a federal guarantee of a right to an abortion out of the hands of the federal government and give this back to states to regulate. At the same time, you've got Bruin saying states should not be able to unduly regulate certain kinds of gun restrictions. In fact, we need to have a federal guarantee that protects the Second Amendment. And this really does seem, I think, to someone who hasn't listened to our three podcasts or followed the courts uh, or or read the opinions, pretty hypocritical, right? And quite partisan, to be honest, um, in terms of taking some some rights out of states' hands and, and putting other rights back in states' hands, really along partisan lines. Um, can the court do anything to try to recover this sort of erosion of, of what's, what's been seen before as public trust, sort of this, uh, tilt towards a sort of just crass partisanship? I mean, I, I think, I think the court, I mean, my, I, I mean, this is. I, I think I think the court is in danger, um, but I also think that yeah. I mean, one thing to note is that trust in institutions is, is just down. Period. Um, I mean, that's the first thing to note is that you know if you look at yeah, I mean, trust in Congress has almost always been low, <laughs> but right. you know, but trust in the presidency, trust in the media, trust in you know, you just go down the line, right? And yep. all yep. these major institutions, right? Trust is is on the decline. So in some ways, it's hard to separate. Like, to what extent is this just a generalized? distrust in institutions, period, and to what extent is the Supreme Court um, um, separately or specially in trouble. Um, so I do want to say that, and I don't, I haven't seen any analysis that's done a good job disaggregating that. I think a lot of people have acknowledged that, but I think there is sort of this, yeah, it's tough, it's tough to know which is, which, what's causing what. But I think on the other hand, I mean, I do think the court has this real danger, right, of, of being quite partisan, right? And I think, you know, it, it would be interesting now, you know, Justice Breyer, actually, it's, it seems like a million years ago, but like at the beginning of this year, Justice Breyer actually went on a big book tour saying that the court wasn't partisan. Um, and yet at the end of this term here, right, you know, we had the Dobbs case where he's not respectfully dissenting, he's just dissenting. Yep. And you have, you know, in the Bruin case here where he's saying he, you know, anyway, he's saying what he says, he thinks the court's very off base here. <laughs> um mm-hmm. You know, and so I wonder what Breyer would say now, right? I wonder mm-hmm. if he, you know, obviously since mm-hmm. he wrote his book, he's probably not going to say anything publicly. Um, but, uh, you know, I do wonder if he had waited a year to publish that book, if he would have said the same thing. Um, and, you know, that does raise sort of like really troubling things. I mean, you know, I don't think, I don't think it's any news, right? That the confirmation process has been increasingly political and that it's sort of, you know, came to an or, up, up an order of magnitude with during the Trump administration, um, but I don't know. I, it, it, it is it is it, it does it does seem it does seem troublingly 
um, partisan, right? That it that, that every decision that the court is coming out with pretty much seems to magically align with what Republicans want, and the stuff they're overturning seems to magically um, not be stuff that the Democratic Party wants. Um, and, and again, just going back to Scalia, right? I mean, I think about Scalia, right? Again, right? Scalia wasn't didn't do that, right? I mean, Scalia saw originalism as sort of guiding him, right? And it sometimes guided him in ways that made Republicans happy, and it sometimes guided him in ways that didn't, right? And I mean, more often made Republicans happy, but but not always, right? I mean, and, and I think in that sense, right, to him, I guess, I guess my concern can be kind of boiled down to this. I think to Scalia, originalism was a method. It was something that he looked to above him to guide him. And I worry that the current court, especially with its configuration and increased political, you know, politicization, sees originalism as a tool not as a method. It's a tool as in we're going to use this to justify our own partisan views and get to where we want to be um, instead of viewing it as a method. But I don't know. That's just me. And yeah. That's good. I have so many thoughts. Hard to know where to begin. I think, I mean, I think one, I mean, I'll say a few different things to sort of the the difference between Dobbs and Bruin, like Dobbs is, you know, be giving sort of a, sort of a right back to the states to decide uh, versus Bruin is taking it away. I think, you know, from the court's perspective, you could say like, well, um, there is one right that is very clearly enshrined in the constitution, even though we might debate the limits. And that is, you know, the right to keep and bear arms, the right to an mm-hmm. abortion is absolutely nowhere to be found. Right. So, so you have to keep that in mind. And I think if people were to understand that the court isn't, is, is trying to do textual interpretation of the constitution, right? This is where civics education is horrible in the United States. I think there'd be a better appreciation of that, but there's not. Um, even so, this was a really big year. This this is the biggest, the biggest year in Supreme Court cases in my lifetime, um, certainly in, in recent memory, right? It's mm-hmm. a really big year. Um, and there are some really hefty cases that the court was dealing with. I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think some of them, you know, have to do with the court trying to do what it sees as, you know, errors that it committed previously. So in the case of Dobbs overturning Roe, um, also dealing with other sorts of um, sort of sort of state sort of laws that they view as out of bounds. Right. We'll talk about some um, or state actions that were out of bounds. So we're dealing as as we sort of states fracture in different directions. So we could talk about some of that uh, next week as well. Obviously, we talked about the Bruin case today, Um, but I think. I'm not really ready to jump on the bandwagon that the court is irretrievably partisan now. I think certainly if you look at, you know, what Thomas wrote in his concurring opinion, the Dobbs case and what Thomas is doing now, like, yeah, it does seem like he's got partisan conclusions that he wants to arrive at. Um, But I think, and this gets to Andy's point, you know, what a lot of the justices in the middle are shooting for doesn't seem to be as sort of transparently partisan to me. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you exclude sort of Thomas on one side and then Sotomayor on the other, who's very much also like just wants to arrive at her own conclusions, I'd say if you exclude those two, the rest of them, and maybe Alito as well. Right. But if you exclude mm-hmm. some of those um, and even Breyer, to some extent, you just look at your five sort of or six justices right in the middle, um, it becomes a lot less clear. And I think you mm-hmm. see these more partisan shifts because um, on these sorts of cases, yep. um, if the Supreme Court's going to take them, the conclusion that they're going to arrive at is always going to appear partisan just by the very nature of the cases that they're taking. Um, and people are going to be upset about that. I think another thing to keep in mind is that um, that even this year, um, the court has ruled in a bunch of other cases. Um, and the the court 
more often than not has very large majorities and majorities mm -hmm. that sort of span ideological yep. lines. Yep. That's a little bit less the case um, this year than previous years. But I think even in sort of the Roberts court, you see sort of an overall trend, um, mm -hmm. which changed mm -hmm. this year a little bit. We'll see what happens next year. An overall trend of very large majorities, right? So if you're a real dork like me and you're into this sort of stuff, you can go <laughs> to SCOTUS blog, the issue, um, what's called a stat pack every year. And they basically break down the size of majorities, um, when justices are sort of um, sort of concurring or voting with each other and when they're not. And it turns out that the bulk of the cases um, that justices are working on, um, they're, they're not partisan outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. um, but of course, mm -hmm. these don't make the news. They right. don't capture people's attention. No one follows these. And our civics education certainly doesn't teach students any of this stuff. And so I'm not prepared to say right. that the court is now irretrievably partisan. I want to see what sort of the long-term right. trend is. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. also try to keep all of these, all of these things sort of in, in, in the, the, the big controversial cases in the context of what the court is doing as a whole. So, yep. I agree with that. I, I was going to emphasize the same point about like, I mean, a lot of the cases really do cross those lines and it's not just like the conservatives on one side and, and the liberals on the other. Right. And Robert's trying to figure out where he lands. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of them that really do you know, bring out a kind of broader consensus. And that's encouraging. I think the court's bad numbers are partly reflective of the controversies they waded into, um, some of which are correcting earlier controversies they waded into that went the other way, right? So, I mean, I think we should note that. Like, this is not just, you know, I think there's a tendency to want to like ding the conservative justices at the present, but, you know, the liberals have done a lot of this too in the past, right? And have issued decisions that weren't grounded in a whole, whole lot of anything other than their desire to issue a decision in that direction, right? I mean, like, you know, Roe v. Wade, for example, was, you know, whatever we think of the overturning of it, right, is a, a decision that had a lot of, had a lot of problems, right, um, initially, just in terms of the way they grounded that. So, you know, I think there's, um, I would say that, and I think the other thing is, I mean, like, just the, the court's problems, the, the perception problems are partly rooted in our, our, our deep polarization, which is that, you know, we perceive things based on whether it's going our way or not. Um, and so, you know, you feel good about the presidency if, you're, if your guy occupies it and you feel a lot less good if he doesn't, right? Um, and I think the same thing's true of the court. Like you feel good about it if it's going your way, but if it's not, then, then you are, have reservations. So I'm, I'm not sure to what extent that's actually a deep problem with the court or if that's just another way of saying we have a problem with polarization, which I totally agree with. Um, but I think that might be more us than them. Well, it's us and them. Um, right. it's some because uh, on the one hand, the court is more static because of lifetime appointments. Yep. So yeah. the polarization that we're baking into the court now will reverberate long term. Oh yeah. Will help reinforce. Will help sort of recursively reinforce polarization. And even if the society somehow shifts in some kind of way that reduces polarization, the court won't reflect that for some time. Yep. Um, yep. That's right. So. In some ways, the core is sort of this slow molasses-like reflection of the society around it, yep. and and that presents both mm -hmm. promise that that's exactly what it was designed to do, yep. um, but also I think certain kinds of challenges. Yep. All right, friends, this has been really helpful. I, well, it's been helpful for me. I'm not sure if anyone's listening at this point <laughs> has me. found it helpful, but I've really enjoyed listening to two of you explain sort of the. Yep. Uh, problems and promises and, and peril of uh, this kind of decision, um, what it means for gun control policy in the United States, uh, what it means for the Second Amendment, and, um, and thank you. I'm going to um, 
just let people know that we'll probably gather for at least one more session um, this uh, summer to talk about a couple more cases uh, that the Supreme Court decided upon. And looking towards the fall, as we head up towards the midterms, we'll probably be podcasting a little bit more regularly, not so much on the Supreme Court, but on electoral politics facing the United States um, coming up to November. Woohoo, woohoo, woohoo. Um, you can always uh, follow us um, at Election Shock Therapy, uh, which is part of the uh, Channel 3900 podcast network here. Um, and please subscribe to that. There's a lot of great things on the channel. Please also email us if you have specific questions or topics you'd like us to cover on this podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. On behalf of my colleagues, uh, Mitchell Crum, uh, Matt Cookham, and Andy Bramson, thank you for listening to us. And until we're back in your feed again, go Royals. Go Royals.